imagine. You have a really big secret burning inside of you. It'll become so big you're desperate to tell. How would you do it? Our next story starts in exactly that moment at the office of a poverty agency in Oregon. I'm sitting at the accountant's desk. The executive director comes to the door and says, this is Ron Duncan, he's going to be our new accountant. He's about five foot eight, light reddish brown hair and glasses that are black and kind of small framed. He says hello in a very soft voice and he asked me what I was doing. So I say, I'm making a payroll because today's payday and we have to get paid and I know how to do it. So I just came in and did it. As I say that, you know, he, he smiles and he, he just really looks me in the eye. And then he came to work at the agency and he and I were at a community meeting and we went out for coffee afterwards and we walked and walked and talked really literally until the sun came up. Sometime as the sky was lightening, I just decided I was going to tell him who I was and the whole story of my life. I said, I need to tell you some stuff about me that you don't know. There's a lot more to my life than what you see. I, I've been living as a fugitive since... 1970, and I'm on the FBI's most wanted list. See, it all started in Boston when Catherine was only 21 years old. The Vietnam War was raging, and President Nixon had just announced the invasion of Cambodia. Four students were shot and killed for protesting at Kent State. And then, two were killed at Jackson State. Catherine was part of the National Student Strike Force at Brandeis University, protesting all the shootings and the war. I was really looking for something to commit to, and I really wanted to do something clandestine and direct against the war. So one day, Catherine was at the strike center, organizing and protesting as usual. And this guy named Stanley Bond approached her and said, I heard you want to do something more about the war. I'm putting together a guerrilla group. Do you want to be part of it? And I said yes. It seemed like this is exactly what I had been asking for. He was a Vietnam veteran and He also was a convicted felon on a furlough release from the state prison. Stanley introduced her to the other members of the guerrilla group. Susan Sachs was also a student at Brandeis. Robert Valerian Lefty Gilday came from the same prison release program at Northeastern University. 
and the group would meet up in an apartment in downtown Boston to plan their operations. The specific and concrete thing that we would start out doing was robbing banks to finance the revolution. Their first target was the State Street Bank. On the day of the robbery, Stanley, Susan, and Robert went inside the bank. Lefty stood across the street as lookout, and Catherine was pulled over on a side street in the switch car with the motor running. The minutes kind of ticked by, and then the stolen getaway car pulled up behind me, and Stanley and Susan and Robert Valeri got out and just really hastily got into the back seat of the car I was in, and Stanley was giving me turn-by-turn directions to get back to our apartment in the back bay. I didn't feel anything. I had ice water in my veins. And so I was driving, turn here, turn there, turn here. And then we heard on the car radio that a bank had been robbed and a police officer had been shot by somebody across the street from the bank. We knew that it had to be Lefty Gilday, whose job was to stand guard, but nobody was supposed to shoot anybody. I freaked completely out. I was horrified. Something really wrong had been done, had been done to a person. We were in trouble like we had never imagined. The officer who had been shot was named Walter Schroeder. He died the next day. By that time, we had already left Boston. They all went on the run. And one by one, Robert, Stanley, Susan, and Lefty were caught. But not Catherine. I just felt like it still made sense not to surrender. Even though the FBI had just put her on their most wanted list. The government was an international outlaw, and they had no authority to hold me accountable for anything I had done. So for years, she moved from city to city with the help of radicals. She changed her identity from Catherine Power to Alice Metzinger, never getting too close to anyone until she found herself in Oregon. I got pregnant and I had my son. He changed everything about my life. I had left everybody over and over, and here's somebody I couldn't leave and didn't want to leave. I became more grounded. I got a job at the Poverty Agency, and that's where I met Ron. But still, she was missing something. I'm desperate for a level of authenticity that hasn't been available, and so I leap. And she ends up face-to-face with Ron as the sun's coming up, telling the truth for the first time. He said, your secret is safe with me. I won't betray you. We were deeply in love right away. Together, they led a pretty normal life, gardening, fishing, cooking. Ron and her son Jamie called her Alice, and by this time, She had lost interest in overthrowing the government, but she still struggled with what to tell Jamie. He was now a teenager, and he had a lot of questions. All that came to a head one day when he came home from school with a note from his teacher. 
His science teacher wrote, he's not working to his potential. And I remember sitting on our couch in the living room talking with him. I had the, the report card in my hand. I said, what's that about? And he just looked at me and he said, well, what about you? You were really smart and you got a scholarship. You aren't living up to your potential. You know, I didn't have an answer for that. You know, he had detected one of the contradictions in my own story of my life. I felt really inadequate as a parent. My shame was so deep that I buried everything. So she kept herself busy with work and friends to avoid feeling that shame. And slowly, she started to just fall apart. She eventually didn't want to leave the house or get off the couch. And that's when she found an ad in the paper for a group on women and depression. She decided to go, but it wasn't until after the group session that Catherine got the chance to really talk to the therapist. We walked past the waiting room of the hospital, and the lights were off. It was really dim, and I said, come in here. I want to talk to you. We could just barely see each other's faces, and I said, I want to tell you why I can't resolve the issues of my family of origin. I'm a fugitive. She said, how long ago is this? That Nobody's going to care about that now. It couldn't possibly be that bad. And I said, well, yes, it is. A police officer was killed, and it is that bad. It's still that bad. She said, well, why don't you see what you can find out? about how bad it might be, and gave me the name of an attorney. The next day, I called the lawyer from a payphone, made an appointment to come over to his office. I went into his office. He closed the door, and I I tried to tell him my name. Um, I hardly could say it because it was like for more than 20 years, my life had depended on not ever saying my own name. So he and I talked, and he said he would use very roundabout communication methods to contact the FBI and find out what the situation would really be. After I went to see the attorney, I felt really bad that I had done that without telling Ron. That felt really deceptive. That evening, Ron and I were talking about, you know, his day and my day. And and then I just said, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. I said, I have to tell you something. I went to see a lawyer today. He raised his voice. What have you done? He said. He was just really, really furious. He really did feel that I had betrayed him and broken, you know, kind of sacred trusts that were at the bottom of our relationship. I tried to assure him that it was just to see what might be possible. He was very accusing. Why don't you just leave now? But she didn't leave just then. Catherine was still negotiating with the FBI. It took a year and a half before she finally had a deal and could tell her son Jamie she was turning herself in. Ron and Jamie sat in our living room and I told him very directly that that the name he knew me by, the name everybody knew me by, wasn't my original name. 
and that I was a fugitive and that I was a fugitive because I'd been part of a crime and that I was going to give myself up and quit being a fugitive and it meant that I would have to spend five or so years in prison. I saw him reeling at this shift in the whole like foundation of his life. And then I asked him, I said, well, you know, this is some pretty heavy stuff. You probably, you know, I would imagine you'd have some strong feelings about it. Do you want to talk about them? And he said, look, I'm a teenager. Right now, you're here. When you're gone, I'll miss you. Can I go see my friends now? And he went and saw his friends and he told his friends. And I knew that that was a really likely thing. That's why I had never entrusted him with this secret before. As angry as she had made Ron and Jamie, Catherine knew that this was the price she had to pay in order to reconnect with her mom and dad and brothers and sisters, who she hadn't seen in 20 years. And she did. Her parents traveled from Colorado to Boston to be with her as she surrendered. We begin tonight with an extraordinary extraordinary tale of murder, suspense, and a 23-year-old mystery that was solved today. At her trial in Boston, Catherine had to face police officer Walter Schroeder's widow and children for the first time. Walter Schroeder's oldest daughter, who is pretty much the family spokesperson, was eloquent in criticizing how unremorseful I seemed. And she pointed out that the press had paid lots of attention to my suffering and my family's suffering, and her father was just this unnamed police officer. Even though the news reports often referred to him as a slain officer, the city had not forgotten Walter Schroeder. In fact, he came from a big family of Boston cops, and the square in front of the police station is named Schroeder Plaza. So Catherine's arrest was a big win for the city and for the Schroeder family. And when Catherine saw that, everything just hit home. I had been very defended by statements like, I wasn't even there. And I listened to what she said and let it affect the way I behaved. That includes a much clearer acknowledgement of how my being part of that group led to their father's death and to the suffering that they had as a result. Throughout this time, did you ever take action to reach out to Walter Schroeder's family? Um, it, it didn't seem appropriate. It, it just really didn't seem appropriate. It, it, um, I think that's all I want to say about it. Catherine pled guilty to armed robbery and second-degree murder. At sentencing, the judge gave her 8 to 12 years. My picture of what was going to happen is that I would be in a prison in Oregon for about five years. That was not the case. Catherine did her time in a prison in Massachusetts. 
3,000 miles away from Jamie and Ron. That was just a real shock to the system, if you will. We weren't making everyday life together. That was just such a, a huge part of our connection. I think he became very depressed. So I think we had a lot of distance and a lot of estrangement and ultimately our relationship didn't survive it. We divorced after I got out of prison and he passed away about, golly, I think it might be 10 years ago now. He was very sick but I took him around to some of the places that had been our favorite places. We were able to talk about our sadness that our relationship hadn't survived the separation. We stopped blaming each other and recovered a sense that we'd had a long and good time together and that that was really worth something. Do you feel like it was uh, worth it to go to surrender and turn yourself in and ha you know, have everything happen the way it did? I know that, that it's made a difference for my parents and my siblings that I'm back. I know that it's been, it's been a really joyful thing. So you feel like it was r worth it for you? Yeah, I think it was worth it for a lot of people, including myself. I had some sorrow over some of the ways that things, like my relationship with Ron, came out, but I never had one minute of wishing I had not done it. I mean, I don't feel like I sacrificed myself in this. I feel like I recovered myself. Many thanks to Catherine Ann Power for sharing her story. And to learn more about Catherine's experience, check out her book, Doing Time, Papers from Framingham Prison. The original score for that piece was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Adiza Egan.